How great to be in a new world, the world of post-baptism. You understand that those candidates, and what a privilege, what a blessed privilege, Pastor Neil, I can't wait uh, in the Lord's time, but uh, to be able to, to take someone who has been going their own way and has turned in repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ and has sealed it with this outward display of water that says, I came in dry, I die, I rise again, and I go out in this side. That's the new world in which Christians live. And for many of us, um, that's an adventure. I was looking, Eowyn, at your shirt that you had on the video. Bon voyage. I've got to tell you about some of my story because I was an only child in a family with few relatives, no close cousins, only a few friends. I grew up self-centered, not concerned about other people, especially those who were disadvantaged. And only after being married to someone from just the opposite background did I begin to see as a Christian how selfish I was and to see others with new eyes. And I've been growing in that. Uh, we've been married almost 40, oh, over 40 years, sorry. And uh, I've grown even more by learning this week about the story that I'm going to show you in just a few minutes from the book of Ruth. Um, last week, Pastor Neil began the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and so... In a moment, we'll be in chapter 2, but before we look there, I have to tell you about an ancient custom that is described here where God cared for the poor people in Israel, and he let them glean. Have you heard of that word before, gleaning? Yeah? You see, um, poor people and foreigners who were not part of the people of Israel but were living there... Um, were under God's care. He wanted them to eat well, just like everyone else who had their own land and their own crops. So God commanded his people who had crops not to harvest all the way to the edge of where their property ended. This harvest then was to be incomplete for themselves, so that in doing so, they could care for other people. Does that make sense? It sounds funny to say it, but they were commanded not to do a complete job in their harvesting. But it was a built-in way that God would care for his people, who were outside of the covenant people. Here's two passages from the Torah, from the law of God, that explain this to them. The first one in Leviticus 19 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time to uh, pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. 
Here it is again from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. And now look how Moses adds this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I'm commanding you to do this. See the, the appeal? You used to be outsiders, foreigners, like widows and fatherless. Don't forget where you came from. That's why I'm asking you to do this. So if you're ready... Um, Let's just do a quick review of Ruth chapter 1, what Pastor Neil talked about last week, and then we'll look at chapter 2. The book begins with an Israeli couple who had two sons, and they moved to the country of Moab. And um, let me just uh, advance through some pictures here that show you what this gleaning process is like. All right, and then if you take a look at this map, you will see where Ruth chapter 1 shows the people moving from Bethlehem to Moab during a famine in Israel. And there, the husband died. And their two sons married Moabite women. And sadly, those two sons died very soon after, leaving only their mother, Naomi, as a widow, and her two daughters-in-law. Now, later, Naomi decides to move back to Israel, but only one daughter-in-law, Ruth, showed loyal love and returned with her mother-in-law to the land of Israel. So Ruth chapter 1, the last verse says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So let's pick it up in Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 12 verses and then look just at one thing that we see here. Uh, so follow me now in the copy of the scriptures that you have. Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. 
So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What a story. This morning, I don't want to so much focus on Ruth, but the one who shows up first in this chapter. And he doesn't even show up with a name first. He's described, did you see the way verse 1 describes him? He is simply called a man of standing. And then he's named Boaz. What does this mean, a man of standing? You know, in the Hebrew language, it's very general. In other words, you have to look in the context to find exactly what this means. Standing in what way? The word can be used in some parts of the Old Testament to describe uh, a mighty warrior. But there's no war going on here. It could refer to wealth. But the way it's used later, in fact, in the next chapter, by Boaz himself, in verse 11 in chapter 3, he calls Ruth the same thing in Hebrew. And when he says that, he says, you are a woman of noble character. That's probably what the phrase means. He's presented to us as a man of good standing in the sight of God and people. He's a good and godly man. And verse 3 describes some of his goodness, some of his love for God. Because, you see, according to verse 3, he let the edges open for the gleaners, right? In other words, he was a Torah-keeping, godly man, he was an older man. He's had this property for a long time, and no doubt this was built into the fabric of who he was and what he did. He obeyed God, and he loved the people who were in need. And when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, if that was commanded to me, I might try to wiggle out of this. You know, if Boaz had little faith Maybe he would have said something like this to the guys that were, you know, let's say planting his seed. Hey guys, when you get to the edge of my fields, lighten up on how much seed you throw out there. 
We don't read, you know, save it for the inside. He didn't say that, I don't think. Or what he could have said was, uh, hey guys, you know, uh, last year we, we, we had a, say, a five-foot edge. Let's make it three-foot this year, because I'm running a little low on funds. You know, it doesn't say in the, in the law of God how wide the edges should be. In fact, I don't think he even asked the question. Kind of reminds me of that person who came up to Jesus and said, oh, who is my neighbor? Right? If you have to ask that question, you're already on the wrong side of the answer. No, I, I don't think Boaz was this kind of man. He was in such good standing with his God that he might have said, hey guys, when you're planting this year, throw some extra seed on the edges so more people can have more food. Or maybe he said, hey guys, instead of a five-foot edge, let's, let's pull it back and make it an eight-foot edge. Maybe? Well, I can only speculate about Boaz. The question I have for you and I is, who gleans at the edges of your field? My field? Yeah, you've got fields. You've got a number of fields. Let's just take one field. How about the field that we call money? financial resources. Do you think of every dollar that you own, every dollar that you earn, do you think of it as it's 100% mine? Well, reality check, none of it is yours. God created you. God created you with a brain and an ability and a gift set and a job so, in a sense, you're simply using what he's given you, and he wants you to just say, right, thank you, God. So, it's not all for me? No, it isn't. There's edges to my resources. And if you want to call another field time, that's where, unlike money, all of us are paid the same amount of minutes per day. 24 hours are given to every one of us. You think of every minute as yours? And now I'm going to push in a little bit more, especially to my life, because I look at efficiency as an idol. You know, I've got my to-do list. And if I've got, let's say, 12 things, and at the end of the day, I say, oh, I've got to push those four things to the next day or some other day, I feel like a failure because I didn't get it all done and all the time. And what's really telling is when something unexpected comes, a person or a need or an email or a phone call or something like that, I need to check it off. And the interruption reminds me that I need to have an edge on my clock. 
My 24 hours are not all mine. Getting everything done is not as important as giving something to someone in need. As hard as it is for me to say that, it's true. Uh, parents, are you teaching your kids to share? To share their, their toys, their things, and their time? You know, everything we have and everything we do should include room for someone else. And apparently, God thinks that loving and caring for other people is more important than getting a job done perfectly and completely. And again, I can't believe I'm saying that. Because I thought the Bible says to do everything to the glory of God. And I thought we're supposed to redeem the time. And I thought we're supposed to be zealous for good works. Yes. And then I have to remember that God wants me to have an edge to my field. Add that to the mix. That's my challenge to you. You know the other thing about this story? There's an amazing little phrase, and it's tucked away in verse 3, and if you just read it quickly, kind of like I did, you, you just like read over it like they're just words. But after saying in, you know, one and two, giving you the setup here, can I go out and, and glean? Yes, my daughter, go. It says very simply that, you know, Ruth goes out, enters a field, and as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. As it turned out, in Hebrew, it's a very awkward wording. It says something like, her chance chanced upon her. It's, it's a way of winking and saying something like, by sheer luck, she ended up at the field of Boaz. Some of your versions may read, she happened to be there. Now, why does the author say it that way? Well, like I say, it's a, it's, a, it's a way to say nothing is by chance. There's no such thing as luck in the world. Why? Because God is in charge of everything. Here's a very sweet word. This talks about God's providence. You know, I, many times I've wanted to live in Providence, Rhode Island. I just, I mean... I just love the name of the, the town, maybe not the, all the snow and cold. What is God's providence? It's his sovereign, loving hand guiding all things for the good of his glory and his people. Do you believe that? You better believe that. Your only alternative is luck or chance. But the way it's written here is, Boaz didn't arrange this. Ruth didn't arrange this. Oh no, what will happen? God is supernaturally arranging everything. Wink, nod. It just so happened this way. So what I'm asking is, are you trusting God to guide people to himself through your simple acts, 
of leaving the edges of your life open for other people in need? Don't try to arrange it. Don't, don't take that organizational skill which you have and need for your main field and put that onto the edge. Just let it go and see what God will do. Bon voyage. That's the adventure, right, of living with a gleaning mentality. You know, that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, where he talks this way, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And Paul Miller in his book on Ruth called A Loving Life says this, if an unseen hand is shaping the day, then the day becomes an adventure. So that's Boaz. Wouldn't he make a great friend? Maybe a great neighbor? A great relative? And if you know about the background to this book, the book of Ruth is set in the days of the judges when everyone did whatever was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And Boaz would make a great king. In fact, Boaz foreshadows his great-grandson, King David. You'll see that in two weeks in chapter 4. In fact, Boaz foreshadows his ultimate descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, and only Jesus gives us those new hearts of compassion that let us freely give away the edges of our lives to other people. You remember what the law said? When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Why? Because you need to remember your past. Could I say, Christian, we need to remember that we were slaves in sin. We were foreigners to the household of God. We were like fatherless people, widows, and alone. And it's only the gospel of Jesus who, and where he comes and sets us free from our past. That's what baptism pictures. That's what the freedom of forgiveness brings. A new awareness of who you are in the world of God, liberated by Jesus to love freely. Ah, Lord, what a tall order. And yet, what an adventure. As I think about how you've worked in my life, <laughs> I know there's hope. And I know there's joy in this adventure. And I would pray that you would help my brothers and sisters to have people gleaning at the edges of their lives for the good of those people, for the glory of you and for the joy as we walk with you.
loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.